Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Welcome to Christ the King. Let me start by saying that it's good you're here this morning. Whether you've been with us from the beginning of this Hebrew series or whether you're just here visiting today, it's good you're here because I think it's reasonable to claim that what we have before us in the three short verses that Sophie read a moment ago is the main message of Hebrews. Verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4 of Hebrews are, I submit to you, a snapshot of the entire sermon. Or if you prefer, they are the lookout point. They are the vista from which we can now look back on everything we've covered thus far at the same time as we also now can look ahead to see what's coming in this book. And to help you with that, at this point, uh, I'm going to ask Roger to distribute for me something I think I've never done in a preaching series before. I'm going to give you a handout. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's not like Roger's excellent handouts. <laughs> because all I've done on this half sheet that's coming around to you is just provide uh, an overview of how I see the structure of Hebrews. Now, People who study Hebrews intently and for long stretches of time somehow seem to come up with very different structural outlines of Hebrews. So I want to say this certainly is not the only way to look at the book of Hebrews. It's not perfect. There's lots and lots of complexity that this outline just completely glosses over. But what I'm trying to accomplish in it as you, as you receive it is in a big picture way to show you something of how I'm seeing Hebrews. Not just me. There are other scholars who more or less go with this and, and line up with this, this broad structure. But you just bear with me. that We don't do this all the time at Christ the King, for those of you who are visiting. But I'm going to do it this morning. Where we're, To get into the text that we're looking at this morning, I want to work my way to it using this structure you have in front of you. I see Hebrews in three main sections. I said it last week, but now you see it on paper. The first section is chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 13. That's what we just finished last week. And you recall then, of course, if you've been here or if you've ever read Hebrews, how at the beginning of that section there is that introduction in just the first four verses in chapter 1 called the Exordium, where you get the main theme of Hebrews, namely, God has spoken in His Son. Everything in Hebrews has to do with that speech and its implications. So then, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, and going all the way to chapter 4, verse 11, we were just on this great journey with the pastor who wrote Hebrews, in which we covered an immense amount of material. Such that it's not possible to bring all that in here without handing you a much greater detailed outline than I think would actually be useful for what I'm trying to do this morning. So, we'll just go with the summary that I've put there. It says, chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 4, verse 11, is in praise of the Son who became high priest and the need to listen to what God says. And I put it that way because I think 
praise of the sun and the two things that are going on primarily, ultimately, not, not in terms of amount of ink on the page, but ultimately in terms of those first, the, the, that first section is the son who became high priest and the need for us to listen to what God says, of course, in the son. Because if you recall, we've already seen the son who became high priest emphasized in Hebrews, if you remember this. If you want to look back in your Bibles to the end of chapter 2 in Hebrews, beginning in verse 17, you see it. Chapter 2, verse 17, marks what I would say is the logical high point <laughs> that you come to in chapters 1 and 2, in which the pastor here describes for us what the Son has done. And here at the end of it, of chapter 2, this is the summary, chapter 2, verse 17, therefore, the pastor writes, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, which is what basically chapter 2 was all about. This is the incarnation, right? The eternal Son of God taking on flesh and blood. He had to do that so that, here's the ultimate purpose for doing that, for suffering, for dying, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, if you remember that, that was the high watermark of chapter 2. And there's obviously a lot of overlap with what's there and with what we have in our text this morning. But just to carry on into chapter 3, you see the focus on Jesus as high priest continues. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And now, who again is Jesus to sum this up? He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. So already you can see how that is the, the high watermark point to which our text this morning now returns thematically. So again, verse 1 of chapter 3, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Chapter 4, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. In one sense, we're not really breaking new ground here. Except that between chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 14, came, of course, this lengthy consideration that we've been in for four weeks of the story of the wilderness generation of Israel. Right? All of which was, I think, to draw, to draw attention to how it is that we move towards what the pastor said in chapter 3, verse 1. Our heavenly calling how it is that we share in our heavenly calling. To better understand, by looking at the negative example of Israel in the wilderness, how it is that we are to come to that heavenly calling. And the basic lesson from all of that over the last few weeks was, take care, don't be like the wilderness generation. Today, if you hear his voice, Psalm 95, verse 7, do not harden your hearts. The promise of entering God's rest still stands, the pastor wrote, chapter 4, verse 1. So, therefore, if you go all the way to verse 11 of chapter 4, he ends, let us strive to enter that rest. And in last week, verses 12 and 13 were the, were the big conclusion of that, and we spent time there, I won't review it. 
And if you didn't know any better, you might think, well, I mean, given all this, I guess the pastors abandoned this theme of Jesus as high priest that we were at in chapter 2, but no. Now you turn into the second section of Hebrews and you see on the outline in front of you just how big a block this is, right? It goes from chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to chapter 10, verse 25. I mean, we're going to be in a few different seasons down the road by the time we get to the end of this section. And in the section of 4.14 to 10.25, the main idea, the whole, this is the whole central part of Hebrews, is Christ as high priest and offering. Now, it's not that that's all that's in these chapters. There's some sections that don't exactly, but on the whole, that's where we're at. Now, I want to make sure right now that what's beginning to happen, or I want to begin to happen, is that you're starting to see a little better why. Why is that now the central focus of Hebrews? In other words, why does Christ as high priest and offering take up more than six chapters of this sermon? It was mentioned at the high point in chapter 2. Now it resurfaces now in a big way. Why? Well, what I'm suggesting is that if we really do share in a heavenly calling, as chapter 3, verse 1 says, or just backing up a bit into Hebrews, if, we, if the world to come is really going to be subjected to us, as we argued the pastor was saying in chapter 2, verse 5, if God really is bringing many sons and daughters to glory, as chapter 2, verse 10 says, if the promise of entering God's rest still stands, chapter 4, verse 1, if salvation is finally life with God in a place, as I've been saying several times, if that's the goal of it all, then what we need to have explained fully now in Hebrews is this, how are we going to make it there? All through this first section, we've been seeing how the pastor emphasizes the need for us to listen to what God has said in the Son, right? We know that's what we have to do. We know we need the hearing of faith, unlike the wilderness generation of Israel. The pastor's told us to be those who pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Beginning of chapter 2. That we should not neglect such a great salvation that we who hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, who take care lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart, who hold our original confidence firm to the end, who strive to enter that rest. I mean, at this point, what we need to understand is how, how does that happen? What makes that possible in my life to do what the pastor is telling me I must do? What do I need to grasp? And then what do I need to do if I am to be among those who finally come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, where we end up in chapter 12, verse 22? I think the answer to that is the, is the heartbeat of Hebrews. Because the answer is that all of that's possible because of what verse 14 says. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Boy, you don't get this, you don't get Hebrews. 
That's why we can do what the pastor has been urging us to do and will keep urging us to do in this book. So my goal this morning is just to begin, because this is a big part of Hebrews, takes a long time, just to begin to explain this connection. In other words, I want us to begin to grasp why Jesus being our great high priest is what makes our perseverance possible. That's what I think our text is claiming ultimately. Now, I'm not going to go ahead to explain all the rest of the outline that you have in front of you. You're welcome to keep it, to refer to it as we continue in Hebrews, if you find that helpful. You see the third main section coming uh, later on in chapter 10 up to the end of chapter 12, and then there's the closing and the end of the book. We are now in the first part of the second section. I guess I will at least point out while you're still looking at that half sheet that you see in, in the indication there for chapter 4 verses 14 to 16 is on its own and it has a little asterisk by it, right? A star, you see that. Then lower down you see that same asterisk next to 10 verses 19 to 25. That's just a visual way of trying to show you that those are the two bookends of this second section. And if you were to go ahead and read chapter 10, verses 19 to 25 this week, not a bad idea, you'd see that that passage is in parallel to ours. The, the concepts are almost step by step the same, the same points being made. There's a few more details in those verses in chapter 10 that get fleshed out after all that's come there between now and chapter 4 and then in chapter 10. But it makes the same point as chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, telling us what? Telling us that these are the texts that summarize what the pastor is trying to get across in this whole massive part of Hebrews. You see. So what I want to try and do is now cover what's ahead of us in these three verses, in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And I don't know, some of you like this sort of very analytical outline kind of approach thing, so that was great for you. Some of you are not so enamored by that, and that's fine too. You can put it aside now if you want and just think about these three verses. I've already started to explain some of this, but let me now organize the thoughts of these three verses using these three headings. And they're just, they're made up alliteration is uh, alliteratively so you can remember them we could say that the three components of these verses 14 to 16 firstly there is the requirement which we've been talking some about in hebrews secondly there is the reason we can do what is required and then thirdly is the resource that we can turn to to do what is required so we have the requirement, the reason, and the resource, if those are just helpful hooks to hang your thoughts on. Now, I've already started talking about the first two of these, but let's look at them a little bit more and work our way towards the, towards the resource. But first is the requirement, which actually is not what comes right at the start of verse 14. It comes at the end of verse 14, where the pastor says, let us hold fast our confession. And that just sounds a whole lot like what we're used to by at this point in Hebrews, right? Once again, the pastor requires tenacious endurance. 
the language does suggest a couple of nuances here that I think are helpful. First of all, the pastor does want them to hold fast to the content of their confession, the substance of the faith they confess. They must continue to believe in the good news centered on Jesus Christ. They already do believe in that. As we pointed out, this means they are to keep believing in that. Yes, but it's not just as that content is privately believed. <clears throat> that's not all that's in view. The word confession has the sense of public display. It's the confession they are to hold fast. The public profession of their faith is in view here. This has to entail, of course, the words they say publicly, whether it's when they're among other believers or whether it's when they're among non-believers. They are to proclaim their faith in all settings, not to back away from it. And we discussed the, potential, the possible historical circumstances surrounding Hebrews a long time ago where that would be highly relevant. But even more broadly than that, not only is it what they are to say, it, it could go ahead to include really the lives they're to live. In other words, it's not only what they say, they're to continue to live lives that profess faith in Jesus as God's son. It's confession in word and deed. It's, that's the point. You could say, you could paraphrase it and say, they are to remain true to Jesus. That'd be a nice way to talk about it that maybe helps you see both including what they believe, sort of privately or internally, and what they proclaim and live out publicly, because, of course, really, those are not separate categories, is the point. Let us hold fast our confession, the pastor writes. So it's just a, another way of saying the, the same sort of requirement he has been placing on us from the beginning of Hebrews. That's the requirement. But now, as I was saying earlier, it's really the reason the pastor gives that's at the heart of our text. You see that reason now on both sides of that, of that requirement that comes at the end of verse 14. The reason's there in the first part of verse 14, and then it's there in verse 15. So let's read it again, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The first part of verse 14, and then verse 15, all of it, is the pastor giving us the reason we can hold fast our confession. And now, just to try and make this as clear as I possibly can, let's take that reason in, in two parts. We're able to hold fast to our confession because of, firstly, where Jesus is, and secondly, because of who Jesus is. It's, it's artificial to separate those concepts, but I'll do it anyway for now. Where Jesus is and who Jesus is. You put those things together. And what you have is a powerful reason to be able to do what the pastor says we have to do. So first of all, where is Jesus? I think this is lots of fun to think about. Where is Jesus? Well, verse 14 says, He has passed 
through the heavens. Which, okay, bottom line means this. Jesus having passed through the heavens means Jesus has entered into the place where God dwells. A place that is itself called heaven. So this gets a little confusing. It sounds awkward. But the point is Jesus passed through the heavens in order to enter heaven. Right? Now, Jesus having entered heaven really shouldn't be too surprising if you've been with us since Hebrews chapter 1, because that's what Hebrews chapter 1 was all about. Remember, it was about the Son as Jesus being brought into the heavenly realm and sitting down there. Chapter 1 verse 3 said that. Chapter 1 verse 13 said that in quoting Psalm 110. Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, no question there. Jesus has come to be in heaven with God. Yep. But then why this language of having passed through the heavens? And there are various theories here regarding precisely what the pastor means. I'll not go into it all. I'll simply make a couple of points. First of all, the pastor is very, very dependent upon the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, the word heaven is always in the plural. Always. The heavens. I think that what's happening here is that the pastor is referring to an event. Because when did this happen? When exactly was it that Jesus passed through the heavens? When you hear the way the verb's translated there, he has passed through the heavens. This is something that happened in the past. But there's a continuing validity to it. There's a, there's a present continuing reality that is the case because this has happened. The question is, when did it happen? And the answer is, you know it, at his ascension. At the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, read the end of Luke, read the chapter 1 of Acts. He goes up into the heavens. Listen to Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Peter there, Acts 2, verse 33, has just talked about the resurrection. And then he says, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand of God..." Jesus has poured out his Holy Spirit, and then Peter says, Acts 2, verse 34, he makes a comparison. He says, for David did not ascend into the heavens. Hear the plural. Acts 2, verse 34. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's Psalm 110 again, right? So there's the ascension into the heavens, explicitly linked there to the point in history when Jesus was granted to sit at the right hand of the Father. That is his ascension to glory. Only the point now at this precise turn in Hebrews isn't so much on the royal status of Jesus as it is on the fact that Jesus has gone there. That Jesus has gone to be with God. You see, he's in. He's entered into the very presence of God in heaven itself. And having done so, he remains there now. 
which then becomes part of the awesome point that the pastor begins to make here about Jesus as a great high priest. So let me just say a little about this. There's so much more to come on this in Hebrews. This is only the trailer this morning. You probably know in the Old Covenant, the position of high priest was preeminent. The high priest functioned as the main representative between the people and Yahweh. And while there's a few different things about the high priest that will come into play later on in Hebrews, for now, the key is this. In Israel, it was the high priest alone who was to enter the most holy place. Right? That is the innermost place in the tabernacle, later in the temple, where God dwelt. Actually, symbolically, both where God was, that is symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's where the Ark was. The Holy of Holies, the most holy place. Only the high priest could go in there. And only the high priest could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. You can read about that in Leviticus 16. We'll come back to this in future weeks. When the high priest went in there, if you've ever read about this, do you know what he was doing? He was sprinkling blood blood that he brought with him on what was called the mercy seat. And the point being, he was symbolically atoning for the sins of the people. That was his one task in there, but it was dangerous stuff. Before he went in, he had to offer sacrifice for his own sins. And then when he entered the Holy of Holies, he only stayed long enough to sprinkle the blood and he got out. You may even know, you can read about it. They sewed bells on the hem of the high priest's robe just so that the people outside could hear him still moving around so that they'd know that God hadn't struck him dead yet. It was once a year, one task, in and out, that was it, and he might well die doing it. Not so, Jesus. You see, he's in for good. That's the main point here. In fact, he sits there. Why? Because his atoning work is finished. I mean, that's, that's a whole chapter later in Hebrews, right? He didn't have to repeat it. We'll come back to that. The point here, really, is to say this right now, that as the one who's entered the presence of God permanently, that is, he's passed through the heavens, Having made atonement once for all, what, what is the pastor trying to drive home? He's just trying to say, Jesus is indeed the great high priest. Okay, great high priest isn't a thing in the Old Testament. You get high priest lots of times. You even get great priest a few times in the Greek Old Testament. You never get great high priest. That's only Jesus. <laughs> That's what the pastor's getting at here. He is unique from any high priest that ever came before. Now, we have a lot to say about that to come, but listen here to just a couple of other points where Hebrews is very explicit about where Jesus is now. If you want, look over at chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. In chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, the pastor says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, hear it, in the true tent, tabernacle, that the Lord set up, not man. Okay. 
also Acts, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered, this is 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see, we have a great high priest in heaven with God. Brothers and sisters, this is the theme of the central section of Hebrews. So we move then to the second part of the reason the pastor gives us. That's all a bit considering where Jesus is. Now, considering who Jesus is. And actually, I've sort of been doing this wrong. I've, I've, been, I've been reversing the point that the pastor is making because the pastor is very precise here. Verse 14, he says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And then he tells us who that great high priest is. He's Jesus the Son of God. And what's supposed to happen there is that it's just like electricity sort of flowing because you just suddenly download everything you've already learned from Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 about the Son of God and Jesus into that moment. And you see the point in all its brilliance, because the pastor intentionally uses both Jesus and Son of God to describe who this high priest is. Well, you know what Hebrews 1 is all about, the Son of God. The basic idea, of course, being the Son of God is God. I mean, he's eternally existed. He's one through whom all things were created. The one who sustains, bears all things. The one who's the heir of all things. That's the Son. The high priest is God himself. But, but then from Hebrews chapter 2, what, of course, is the significance of saying the high priest is Jesus? Well, you remember the very first time the name Jesus is used in Hebrews? It's in chapter 2, verse 9, where the pastor is pulling the language from Psalm 8. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And you recall the point, the basic point of Hebrews chapter 2 is that the Son of God became a man, right? He's the incarnate Son of God, the Son of God who took on flesh and blood. That's who has now entered the presence of God himself. The high priest is a human being who has gained access to the Father. It is our great hope. Christ was able to enter God's presence as a man. And as God himself, as our high priest, because he was the eternal son of God who became a fully human Jesus and offered himself to make purification for sins, you see. And I mean, I hope I don't have to say it. Jesus doesn't stop being human. Ever. He's fully human. That's what's contained in those few words just in verse 14. I mean, read all of this in light of Hebrews 1 and 2 flowing through now. This high priest is great above all others because as the Son of God, he became the human Jesus who by his self-offering passes through the heavens now. He sits down at God's right hand as the representative of God's people and it will take a long time in Hebrews to unpack all of that to full satisfaction. Verse 15 then fills out the implication, at least one implication of this. Look at verse 15. The pastor says, 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, now once again, this is all going to come back later in Hebrews in rich detail, but you see the point. Our high priest is a flesh and blood human being. He's lived life as we know it. He's not detached, unable to experience what we experience. Precisely the opposite. This is, this is shattering stuff in Greco-Roman context of how people thought about the gods, right? But I don't even have to go there right now. The, the opposite. He is able to sympathize. But now be careful because you and I say sympathize in English and usually what we mean is we identify emotionally with someone, right? Which is not untrue, but the meaning here is deeper than that. The Greek sense is, the, the, the sense of the Greek term is, I believe, that Jesus has actually experienced what we experience. Yet without sin, he has felt what we feel in temptation. He has endured it in a state of weakness, just like ours. Now, weakness is actually very hard to pin down exactly what's meant by that word. I like what one commentator says here. He says, quote, weakness is best described as all those inherent human limitations that make us vulnerable to temptation." Inherent human limitations that make us vulnerable to temptation. Jesus could get sick. Jesus could feel pain. Jesus knew fear. Jesus knew death. Jesus knew, I mean, you go on and on. He was made like his brothers in every respect. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, He became a real man. He had a real human body, mind, emotions, and with them their inherent weaknesses. In every respect, Jesus has been tempted as we are, the pastor says. There's great comfort in that. It does not mean that Jesus experiences every individual temptation that we do or that he experienced that. He was not a woman. He was not married. He was not caught in the swirl of our 21st century philosophical and social and economic context. But you see, the point is, Jesus did experience the fullness of the human condition in a world of sin and evil. And temptation hasn't changed. He, in fact, experienced this to an extent we haven't. And this is important. I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity about what could be a possible misunderstanding on this point. Because you could object. You could say, well, Jesus never sinned. That means he doesn't really know what temptation is like. Well, no, that's just because you think to be fully human means you have to sin. Actually, Jesus was more human than we are in God's purposes for humanity by not sinning. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A person who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. 
Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. Well, we could try and talk more about this, but the point is basic. Jesus can sympathize. He has experienced and overcome every kind of temptation to which humans are subject. And therefore, the pastor tells us in verse 16, he is able to empower you precisely in your human weaknesses, you see. And so here we are now, the final point. We've considered the requirement. We've considered the reason at some length. Now more quickly here, the resource. And what we discover is that the resource is none other than God himself. Verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, my time is very short at this point, so here's, there's many things that should be said. Let me just try and summarize the matter this way. When you and I come to understand who and where our great high priest is, there's an attitude that begins to grow in us. And it's confidence. Do you know anything about this? That's the attitude we are to have, the pastor says, if we really get it. When we draw near to the throne of grace, I love how one scholar says this. He says, the word expresses the joyful confidence with which they can approach God because of Christ. Joyful confidence. And you see, here's the point. Under the old covenant, no one could approach God's throne. The Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, no one save the high priest, but he only one day in the year. And every year that approach was undertaken with fear. Not now. God's people are now urged to draw near to the true heavenly throne of God with confidence. Why? Because our great high priest has made that throne a throne of grace a true mercy seat for those who approach God through him. Listen, I'm not suggesting God is any less holy than he was in the Old Testament. Just last week we read chapter 4, verse 13, No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But brothers and sisters, Hebrews would have us see that if we grasp the significance of the fact that we have a great high priest, what we come to realize is that Christ's obedient sacrifice has taken away the sin of the faithful. Hebrews 9, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, the confidence with which God's people are to approach it is joyful, but it's more than just a feeling of joy. This is the point. Through the work of Christ, we have received authorization to enter God's presence. We can. As God's people, the recipients of Hebrews, and we, 
hearing it now, the heirs of this letter, centuries later, we can be sure of God's gracious acceptance. Do you believe that? True faith understands that we can come into the presence of the Holy God. Really? You can. In fact, I'll take it one step further. True faith understands that we must come into the presence of the Holy God. We must because only God can give us what we need to hold fast to our confession. Right? Drawing near to God is not optional if you want to persevere, dear friends. Because look at what the pastor says you receive when you do this. You can't, you can't persevere without these things. We receive, he says, mercy. That's forgiveness. That's the forgiveness of our sins through God's mercy. It's translating God's great covenant faithfulness because God is faithful. We are His faithful children. We are forgiven and released from all our sins. You remember what He says about Himself in Exodus? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, forgiving the sins. I mean, it's all there. The question is, do you believe it? And then with mercy also comes grace. And you know what grace does? Grace strengthens us. Hebrews 13, verse 9, the pastor says, It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. I love that verse. 13, verse 9. Or Hebrews 10, verse 29, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of grace. This isn't just passive acceptance. This is active empowerment, brothers and sisters. We don't just receive forgiveness of our sins in the presence of God. We do. But we receive also His gracious power in our very lives. You see, it's the power Jesus can give us. Jesus can give us by His Spirit because He's able to sympathize. He gets it. He knows what your weaknesses are. He provides the power you need to overcome temptation, to live faithfully in all the circumstances of your life now and every day in the future. Do you believe that? This is grace to help in time of need. The pastor says, literally, it is the timely help. Comes right on time. It is the help that we talked about in chapter 2, verse 18, which says that our high priest, he himself has suffered when tempted, therefore he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's the help. It's the help to endure through hardship, through temptation, on the way to resurrection, on the way to God's rest. That's what we need far more than we need deliverance from whatever the circumstances of our lives might be. Let me end on a final practical note. I know this has been a long one, this today. A final practical note. It is the standard, historic, I think, right way to, to, to interpret this moment, to think of drawing near to the throne of grace as 
a description of what we are to do now in prayer. This is where I think the application comes for us. And so I simply want to challenge us all. Do you pray like this? This is not optional, brothers and sisters. We must draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And yet, that's not our tendency always, is it? It is, I think, the insight of Hebrews to grasp that faithfulness in this, this approach to the divine throne, this is the most difficult of the acts of obedience. This is what our human heart hesitates to do. We approach with hesitation. We drift. We figure God would probably prefer we don't bother. We figure God won't have us any longer given what I've just done. We figure our sin will just, it has to prevent his response of mercy and grace. And we think of it like it's humility. We tell ourselves it's humility. No, it isn't. This is who God is, brothers and sisters. So I don't know if, if ending this way will make a lot of sense to you immediately, but I do hope you'll dwell on it this week and think about it. Apostasy starts, apostasy starts where our approach to the throne of grace hesitates. Apostasy starts where our approach to the throne of grace hesitates. It will not do because in that hesitation is doubt. Do you see? Faith approaches with confidence. Obviously not. Looking at our own selves, thinking we've got a lot to bring. But it approaches with confidence because faith sees there at the throne our brother seated. Knows him as Jesus, the Son of God. The high priest who atones for our sins. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. The only question is, do you believe it? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.